Thank you for tuning in to Cobblestone Community Church today. We hope this message blesses you. If you need prayer for anything, please email us at prayer at cobblestonechurch.com. Now here's the message. There are six or maybe seven more or less accepted strategies on how to approach Song of Solomon. Uh, Three are solid and three or four, not so much. You see, when it comes time to put the name on the Bible study or the name on the commentary article or something like that, Bible scholars get really shy about saying that one approach or one strategy is the only right one and all the others are a little bit wrong. And I know we had this video here, but have we become sort of, I won't say addicted, but we really like our, 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 our Bible project videos, don't we? Right? And I'm starting a new book today, and you're kind of thinking like, Where's my Bible project video? Well, I saw it, and you can see it too. But I didn't bring it here today (laughs) because that seven-minute video goes about six and a half minutes going, eh, I don't know. I don't know. So, you know, even here in this pattern we're in today, we're actually hearing a lesson today on what we start reading tomorrow. Normally, you'd see one of our pastors right here where I'm standing teaching on what you've already read. (laughs) But I am so glad that we get this time here together today before you start reading about lips dripping honey and cheeks like the halves of a pomegranate tomorrow. Yeah, today's going to be good. I'm especially glad because I get to call attention right now to a verse of Scripture that my fellow elder Ed Gomes called attention to about three weeks ago. It's a verse in Psalm 119. It's the 130th verse, and it says... The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. The unfolding of these words in Song of Solomon are going to give us light. They are going to impart understanding, just like all the other words of Scripture. So let's pause right now and meet God at the point of his promise. Lord God, we trust you. Your words are true. They are refined. They have stood the test of time and they will carry us into eternity. Lord, we trust that you have brought us together in this place. This is not a surprise to you. You've brought us together in this place to hear from you. Jesus, you've mentioned the Holy Spirit and called him by the name Spirit of Truth and said he would guide us into all the truth. Lord, we are eager to accept the truth that you have for us today. Lord, open up your word. Lord, we pray your words to you again. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things from your law. I pray it on behalf of all of us, Lord. Fill us up with light and understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I will tell you this about Song of Solomon. The last time we did a series on this book, it was back in the days when Cobblestone Community Church was portable at the middle school, and we did six weeks on Song of Solomon. And each of those six weeks, whoever was doing announcements that Sunday would get up And give this warning, parents, scoop up your children and run, don't walk, down the hall to the nearest kids' ministry worker who will understand completely why you're in such a hurry. John's teaching Song of Solomon, get the kids out of here. No, it's okay. That was then, and this is now. (laughs) These days, I usually save the steamier parts of Song of Solomon for for premarital counseling, you know, 
They're at my dining room table. That's a way easier context to manage. I'm going to tell you why. And even then, I sometimes get the blinking, you know, in the wide eyes. That's Bible? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So parents, relax. Uh, The kids don't have to go anywhere. In fact, kids, you belong here as much as anybody. When I get together with, with the other elders of this church, one of the things I love to hear is this theme. The adult's vision is the kid's vision. The kid's vision is the adult's vision. There is no minimum age requirement for being a lover of God, loving others into life-changing encounters with him. We are in here together on purpose. Relax. In fact, kids, I would love for you to ask your parents questions about Song of Solomon. Maybe at lunchtime today. That could, be, that could actually be a lot, a lot of fun. So stay put. You got stuff to do. Well, right off the bat, I want to simplify just as much as I possibly can. I mentioned those six or seven strategies for, for approaching the Song of Solomon. So we're going to simplify by at least 50%. Those three or four that are meh, like this, we're going to look at those say, well, that may be interesting in some other century, but not today. And we're going to take a look at the three solid strategies for reading Song of Solomon, and, and they are these. There is the literal interpretation meaning Song of Solomon is the story of an actual romance between a man and a woman. That's not too hard to imagine. Okay. The second one is called the typical interpretation of Song of Solomon, meaning that Song of Solomon is the story of Jesus' love for the individual believer. Uh, If you go to Bible school, they'll tell you this is like the order of salvation. Jesus saves people one at a time, and Song of Solomon is that story that he plays out in in the life of the believer who becomes saved. The third interpretation is called the allegorical interpretation, meaning the Song of Solomon is the story of Christ's love for his bride, the church. So that over there in Bible school, they'd say that's the history of salvation. Like Jesus saves everybody who's going to be saved. And so it's the story of his bride, the church, and his romance and his love for them. All right. Again, relax. You don't have to remember these. I'm not going to give a quiz. Well, not on these terms. There will be a pop quiz, but that's kind of on the fly. You don't have to remember them. Uh, In fact, we're going to simplify even further. And I'm going to tell you the plain fact about Song of Solomon and these three methods of interpretation. They all work. They all work. And that's not pluralism, that's not postmodernism, that's not post-truth double talk. That is simply me saying to you, I trust God to be smart enough and loving enough to pull off all of these at the same time. Song of Solomon tells three stories simultaneously. Oh, I hope you're intrigued. Here's why it's important. Well, I feel and believe it's important as a pastor in this church for you to know that. It's because all through this life and the next, you're going to need to know, and I'm going to need to know, that God has not abandoned any of these stories in favor of the others. That he has not elevated one story to the exclusion of the others. We need to know that his love presides over all three stories. So let's take a look at them one at a time. All right, the literal interpretation of Song of Solomon. 
It's proof that a passionate, intimate, committed love can happen between a husband and wife, a one-flesh covenant that lasts until death separates them. It is possible. It's there. We'll see. Most of the debate over Song of Solomon, let's just meet that head on. Most of the debate about Song of Solomon centers on the issue or the question of, does it tell a story? Does it tell a cohesive plot, a thing? Does it start, start in one place? I'll do it from your perspective. Does it start in one place, follow a plot and a storyline, and end someplace else? And some say yes and some say no. I'm a yeser. Big time. I'm a yeser three times over. Yes, yes, yes. It does. It tells those three stories that start in a certain spot, follow a plot, and end, land, with a conclusion. Yeah, it tells a cohesive story. The literal interpretation of Song of Solomon begins with the attraction. Begins right there, like, like romances do. There is that attraction. That's why the, the romance gets, gets started. In Song of Solomon, you hear the Shulamite girl, the beloved. Oh, she's expressing her desire for this one she admires. And, and she's, she's going to put herself right out there. This is how it starts out. <laughs> yeah, this is not PG-13. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Here's, here's what you need to know about, about that expression of her, of her desire. She was coming from a place where she really didn't think she could do that out loud. Like, that was really getting out there. It was, it was making herself vulnerable. She was taking a big chance. You see, this Shulamite girl did not see herself as attractive. She wasn't from the, the, the pampered set. She'd had to work. Her skin was darkened by the sun. She thought she was unattractive. And still, she persists. Sadie Hawkins... You know, the Sadie Hawkins dances? The Shulamite girl, kind of like Sadie Hawkins, asking the boy to the dance? Right, she's, she's still out there, and, and, and she, she gets, gets out there. Thankfully, thankfully, she finds him attracted to her. And so he says, as soon as I find it, I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. That's a good thing. That's the best of the best. All right? I know some of the metaphors are, yes. You giggled there. It's okay. It's all right to giggle. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of, of jewels. And from there, there's more courtship. There is uh, an engagement period. There is... The wedding, chapter 4, describes the wedding night, and we're going to leave that one on the back burner for today. Thank you very much. It's there. It's there. In the second half of the book, beginning right after chapter 5, verse 1, there is this period of, like, cooling off, this period of complacency. After that, you see the couple work that stuff out. They get through that rough spot. The marriage is better than it ever was before, probably because of the rough spot, and by the time the story ends, this literal interpretation of the Song of Solomon, these two are finding ways to, to make it possible for 
the younger set to find the same kind of satisfaction in marriage that they themselves have found. And that's how it rolls. Here's the glitch. Nothing wrong with the interpretation, but part of the truth of the interpretation, this is a romance between an actual man and a woman, is this. They're fallen people living in a fallen world. Just like you and me. The original fall of mankind has had the same effect on them as it has on us. So we need to go back there to that, those early chapters of Genesis, back there to learn how to navigate the, the tricky waters around here. So go back to Genesis chapter 2. Now here comes the pop quiz that I mentioned to you earlier. In Genesis chapter 2, God calls... I'm, I'm counting on the kids to come up with this answer before the adults. In Genesis chapter 2, God caused Adam, the first man, to fall into a deep sleep. While he was in the deep sleep, God took from the side of Adam a rib. And from that rib, he made how many women? One. <laughs> One. Okay, Genesis 2.22 says, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Has it ever occurred to you that the first marriage was an arranged marriage? God didn't create half a dozen women from that rib and say, Adam, like, knock yourself out, man. Like, <laughs> pick one, pick ten. No. He made one woman. Here she is. And Adam seems plenty pleased enough. You know what the first recorded words of a human being are? This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. <laughs> well, the he 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 part was the, yeah. He seems plenty pleased enough. I mean, this is, this is looking kind of... This is looking great. All right, so what, here's the next pop quiz question. In Genesis chapter 2, what did Adam and Eve wear in the Garden of Eden? I heard that. <laughs> nothing. And nothing, <laughs> and nothing was okay for a time. Before Adam sinned, nothing was perfectly acceptable. I mean, it was perfect. But after Adam's, after the sin, and their eyes were opened, and they understood that they were naked. Uh-oh. They sewed together fig leaves and made what? No, not hats and mittens. Loincloths. Right. Here's the next question. Did God tell them to do that? Correct. He did not tell them to sew those fig leaves together into loincloths. They were already trying to hide from, from God and from one another. There is this misperception, this general assumption that because Adam and Eve got kicked out of the Garden of Eden, that all of the Garden of Eden experience is unavailable to any of us anymore. And that's just not true. Yes, they were expelled from the Garden. Yes, the way back into the Garden is blocked. Yes, the tree of life is off limits until God says it isn't. But would they still have a relationship with God? Of course. Does Scripture, does God through Scripture call us into relationship with Him? Of course. Would they have a relationship with one another? Yes. <laughs> All right. The relationship with God would be tainted by the sin. The relationship with each other would be tainted by the sin. 
the work that they had in the, in the garden would continue outside the garden, but it would be harder. Yes, all of that is true, but it's not off the table. In fact, I would say to you that most of the best of what Adam and Eve experienced in Genesis chapter 2 inside the garden is still available to us today. To God's daughters and sons. It is entirely possible to live a whole lot of Genesis 2, even though Genesis 3 happened. In the literal translation of Song of Solomon, what you see is a couple living at large. They're living a whole lot of Genesis 2. So what kind of challenge are we really up against? If it's not that we've been expelled from the garden, oh shoot, nothing of that, of that is available to us, what is the challenge we're actually up against? Well, I want to point you deep into the New Testament in the first John chapter 4, where the 18th verse says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Why do I bring that up? Well, it's to, to call attention to the fact that, that Adam's love was not perfect. Church, I'm 40-plus years into living that in literal interpretation of Song of Solomon, glory, hallelujah, and yet my love for, for my bride, Kay, is not perfect. And that's by design, and I'll explain a little bit in a few minutes. But you can tell Adam's love was not perfect. How can you tell? If Adam's love had been perfect, he would have interposed himself between his beloved and the serpent. If Adam's love had been perfect, he would have faced down the serpent even at the cost of his life. Which brings us to the second interpretation of the Song of Solomon, the typical interpretation. Are you familiar with the terms first Adam and last Adam? That's kind of floating around in your consciousness there. There they come from 1 Corinthians 15, uh, chapter, chapter 15, verse 45. It says, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Now, the first Adam is the one, of course, we were just talking about from Genesis. And the last Adam, the life-giving spirit, is Jesus. Yell it out any time. The last Adam is Jesus. The first Adam was why we needed the second Adam. But see, Jesus is, is begotten, not created. Adam was created, not begotten. Now, I'm not trying to throw too many terms at you right now, but, but here's how it works out. The first Adam was a man created from the dust of the ground, with life breathed into his nostril by God himself, and he became a living being, as 1 Corinthians 15.45 says. Adam, the first one, was equipped with love, but of the imperfect sort. The second Adam, Jesus, who is begotten, not created, is God. And we agree on that. And from 1 John chapter 4 again, what do we know? God is love. The second Adam is God, is love, is the very definition of love, the perfect kind that casts out fear. When your soul was in danger, Christian, when my soul was in danger, in case we're doing some old songs today, let me put you back onto another one called Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. When your soul was in danger, Jesus interposed his precious blood. 
he did face down the serpent. And he beat the old deceiver. And it cost him his life. And yes, he went into that battle knowing that it would. The perfect expression of perfect love. For while we were still weak, the Bible says, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's your story, Christian, and it's mine as well. That's why it's called the typical interpretation of, of the song in so Song of Solomon. And if we read Song of Solomon in that typical interpretation method, let's simplify again. Let's read Song of Solomon with this question on our minds and in our hearts. Why would Jesus die for me? But as you read through this week, if you'll keep that question on the forefront, you'll find the answers everywhere you look. Why would Jesus die for me? In this interpretation, you see the individual believer as a Shulamite girl expressing her desire. And then you see the beloved uh, answering faithfully. We, we are in our in our shaky, tentative faith, we express our desire for Jesus. Uh, like the old saint said, uh, our soul, the soul is restless until it finds its rest in God. So we express that desire, and then our beloved Jesus, he answers faithfully, expressing love in terms that we would not let ourselves imagine before. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. Whoa, to be adored like that. And to know what Jesus paid for the right to say such things? Oh my. His voice isn't absent from this song. His voice is the refrain. His voice is the, the chorus, the, the assurance, and the ultimate expression of, of, of perfect love. Read it, sing it, pray it, own it. Own it. It's yours, sealed by the blood of Jesus. That love story right there. His perfect love carries us through the imperfect times. And that brings us to the third interpret interpretation method for Song of Solomon, the allegorical. Times will not always be imperfect. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 10, talks about when the perfect comes. I know it has the definite article, the, that kind of leans, points us toward thinking of a thing. The perfect is not a thing. The perfect is a person. The perfect is a person. When the perfect comes, Jesus is the perfect. And when he comes, whatever has been partial, whatever has been imperfect, will either cease or it will become complete. When the perfect comes, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is known as the love chapter. Okay, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast. Those verses are favorites in weddings and for good reason. But the theme of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 isn't just love for love's sake. The theme of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is the perfection and the completion of love. And that theme is expressed in the summary statement 
the verse that closes out that chapter that says this, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Next question to you. Why is love greater than faith and hope? Is love somehow intrinsically better than faith and hope? Should we maybe go to Scripture to find an answer before we venture a guess? Yes, we should. It's in the same chapter. It's verse 8 of that same chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. Love never ends. Have you thought about this? Our faith will end in sight. And our hope will, will end when we receive what we've hoped for. There's no need to take it on faith when it's sight. There's no need to hope for it when we have received it. Faith ends. Hope ends. Love never does. What has been impartial, what has been, what has been partial and imperfect will flow seamlessly, seamlessly, when the perfect comes into the perfect and the complete. The allegorical interpretation of Song, Song of Solomon is the expression of Jesus' love for his bride, the church, to incorporate the Old Testament story too, because it's of a piece. It's the expression of God's love for his blood-bought daughters and sons. The story starts way ahead of Song. In the first book of the story of God, the very first promise of a Savior, did you know this? Or if you will, the very first promise of a bridegroom for the bride is right smack in the middle of all that deceit and falling and, and, and oh, wow, it's Genesis chapter 3. That's the first promise of a Messiah, of a Savior, of a bridegroom. Right there is the first promise that there will come a Savior, a kinsman redeemer who, who will save, who will save people from the ugliness that's happening in that moment as sin and death enter the human experience. He will save a people for God's own inheritance, the bride of Christ. Hello, bride of Christ. That's the allegorical interpretation of Song of Solomon. Jesus is constantly sanctifying his bride. Ephesians 5 says, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the allegorical interpretation of this, this beautiful love letter, you see the church, you see us as the Shulamite girl, convinced that she's unattractive, convinced that she's unacceptable, undesirable, but still wanting so much to, to express her desire for the lover. Ah, it's still right there. She's, she's living this hand-to-mouth existence. She says, do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me, my mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. But the one she expresses her desire for, expresses his commitment to her, takes her in, supplies her every need. And pretty soon she's saying, he brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. So where does the story land in the allegorical interpretation of song? It lands in the last book of the story of God and in the story of Jesus' love for his bride, the church. It's back in the Revelation, chapter 19. 
Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. As if all the others weren't. I could get anything, Bubba, get this. These are the true words of God. This is where the story lands. This is it. When the perfect comes, look out. You know a word I love from this passage? Exalt. When's the last time you used exalt in conversation? Don't even try. I don't know, except when I read it from Revelation 19, you know what I think the reason is? I don't exalt very well. Honestly, I, we got the reminder from Andrew, we're gathered in God's name. We're gathered before the Holy One, Ancient of Days, the Almighty. I'm still thinking like, I don't know if I want to see any, I don't know if I want anybody to see me exalting. You know? Well, frankly, y'all don't either. You know? Exalt. But when the perfect comes, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, exaltation will bust the heck out. It's busting out, and it'll be holy, and it'll be pure, and it'll be unstoppable. The exaltation, sure, we can catch a little preview of it now. We've got these are the true words of God telling us that it's as sure as if it had already happened. We're looking forward to this. Maybe one of the difficulties of the three, trans, three interpretations is that we've seen two of them. We've seen romance happen. Many of us, many of us have lived it out. We've seen the typical interpretation. We've seen how Jesus saves people one at a time. Many of us have lived that out. What we've seen so far in the allegorical doesn't include the ending. Not yet. Not yet. Maybe that's, that's part of the difficulty. And maybe that's why it's maybe tough to understand or accept this hypothesis I'm throwing out there, if not theory, that all three interpretations work. They have to be glued together by something. By something. What might that be? They're glued together by the love of God. They're glued together by the love of God. The love of God that breathed creation, or that spoke creation into existence, that formed a man of dust from the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The love of God that created a woman from the precious living flesh of a man. The love of God that promised a savior at the very first sign of trouble. The love of God that brought Jesus to earth and sent him to the cross the love of God that caused Jesus to ascend into heaven for the reason of preparing a place for us so that we could be with him and behold his glory. That's the love of God that glues all three stories together. If Song of Solomon told only one story, here's what would happen. Many of us would be mightily tempted to just pass it up, ignore it, because 
if it's only one, some stages of life, if it was only one, it would be either meaningless or too painful to bear. Glued together by the love of God that precedes Genesis and rolls into the Revelation and then right on into, right into eternity. So how do we keep ourselves in those three stories? By keeping ourselves in the love of God. By keeping ourselves in the love of God. Years ago, Kay and I were at this big event in a stadium, and we were already seated, and there was a, a tunnel. You know how that works uh, in this high-angle seating. There's a tunnel close by us, and, and, and this, this young fellow, I can still picture him. He's burly, man. He's got whiskers and, like, guns. Dude, he had guns. And he's got a little girl on his arm, presumably his daughter. It looks like she's about, about three. And, and the dad came out of the tunnel and he looked up. It looked like he was looking for somebody. He stood there for a minute or two. And I started noticing the little girl. She'd pop up and look around for a few seconds at a time. But pretty soon, you know, the, the, the press of people and the noise and the hubbub got her face buried in dad's chest. And I said to Kay, I wish I could remember what that feels like. I wish I could remember what it's like to be carried like that. That's what we're going for. To find ourselves and keep ourselves in the love of God. It's not easy. and never has been. And maybe right there, kids, that's where you got an advantage on us crusty old adults. Because it's going to be a little closer to that time when you were carried, like that little girl was being carried. Maybe that's your advantage. Maybe you could teach us a thing or two. Remind us, please. Give us a path into this, this love of God. God knew it wouldn't be easy. And, and, it's, and it's, it's, it's not difficult because it's an unpleasant thing. No, just quite the contrary. It's, it's difficult to keep ourselves in the love of God because the adversary the enemy, the hater of our souls, knows just how freeing and redemptive it is. The enemy of our souls knows he can do us no harm there. Keep yourselves in the love of God. God gave us that phrase in Scripture, actually. He inspired Jude in his letter to the churches, his letter to the believers, to say this. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. Hang on while I wipe my nose. But you, beloved. But you, beloved. Can I do that one more time? But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. I just pull, call the worship team back up. We've got a, a little more time to spend together, and we're going to do it calling attention to our lover, 
in a way that's been handed down to the church since that night before the crucifixion. It's a thing that we come to call communion or the Lord's Supper. And of all the things Christians have found to disagree on, thank you, Jesus. We have, to a high degree, been able to remain in agreement about the Lord's Supper. Jesus said, as often as you do this, remember me. That's the part we agree on wholeheartedly. And I trust that's the part we all agree on right here. We've got um, these communion elements. I used to hate those little cups and that wafer. You know, I worked for a company that built paper mill machinery, so I was in paper mills a lot. And that wafer's like, man, that just came off the dry end. Whoa. I don't know. I don't know why they put it there. I know where it came from. <laughs> I used to hate those little cups and those wafers. Like, oh, man, we got to be able to get more authentic than that. But those goofy little cups have carried us through COVID, haven't they? Right? We don't got to worry about it. Nobody has stuck their little finger in the juice that's inside that cup. Well, not since before it was packaged anyway. And what could possibly live through all that? But in remembrance of our Lord, for every believer, every Christian in this room, I'd like for you to take hold of that cup, that funny little wafer on the top. If you're not a Christian, don't worry about it. This is something we Christians do, and we hope to live a witness that will draw you into the family, into being part of the bride of Christ as well. And think about that undying love. Yes, yes, it cost him his life to face down the serpent and to be the deceiver. What did Jesus proclaim even before it happened in John chapter 10? I have power to lay my life down and, and I have power to take it up again. He had it covered. We're learning it and living it a day at a time. And today is the day. Today is a good day. You can separate that thing however, however it works. I don't know, my arthritic hands have a little trouble with the, with the cup at times. I think we can manage to get this apart. Ah, there's the paper, I mean the wafer. As you're reading Song of Solomon this week, it's okay to giggle. God actually has a great sense of humor. Your teeth are like yous coming up from the washing. Each one has its twin. Great. <laughs> Glad of that. Your hair is like flocks of goats leaping down Mount Gilead. Give that a try, fellas. On that night before... He made the atonement, capital A, atonement. Jesus drew attention to the cup. He and his friends there. They had, and he called attention to the bread. And he said to them, this bread is my body broken for you. 
take, Christian, and eat of the bread in remembrance of our Lord. In the same way, he took the cup and he called attention to it and he said, this is my blood of the new covenant. And he invited them to take and drink from it. In remembrance. Oh, gosh. That was the night before. I wonder when the apostles and the disciples celebrated communion for the first time after. Well, we can do that right now. Take Christian in remembrance of the blood of our our Lord Jesus spilled out for all of us. I won't lie to you and say that it's easy or like falling off a log to keep yourself in the love of God. But if you find anybody who has even once tasted the love of God, that person will tell you that it's worth every effort. 100 plus years ago, there was a Bible teacher by the name of Oswald Chambers. He was known to have tasted the love of God. And in his writings, he highly recommended it. He even, in one of his writings, set a contrast that I think is very helpful. Maybe we should take a look at it today. And he wrote, drink deep and full of the love of God, and you will not demand the impossible from earthly loves. And the love of wife and child, of husband and friend, will grow holier and healthier healthier and simpler and grander. My hope is that you keep yourselves, that we run together, as Krista might say if she were standing here, that we run together in the love of God, encouraging one another. We have words of encouragement right there in the Scripture. Isn't it cool, so cool, that God gave the how right ahead of the what? How do you keep yourselves in the, ourselves in the love of God? By building yourselves up in your most holy faith. And what's that mean? That means abiding in his word. That means, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, always abounding in the work of the Lord, being steadfast and immovable, knowing that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. Building yourself up in your most holy faith and by praying in the Holy Spirit. And beloved, don't be confused by that term. It's so much simpler, I think, than what leaped to mind when I said that. Jesus had a name for the Holy Spirit, called him the Spirit of Truth. Romans chapter 8 assures us, verses 26 and 27, the Holy Spirit, for you, believer, prays the prayers you didn't have the words for. It was a grunt. It was a groan. It was a in the gut. But the Holy Spirit found a way to intercede for you, verse 27 says, says, according to the will of God. Praying in the Holy Spirit is simply this, praying in cooperation with the one who already intercedes for you according to the will of God. I didn't come here today to convince you of of theories of interpretation. I'm not nearly enough Bible scholar to be pushing that agenda, not at all. But the Lord did send me here this morning to tell you this. Keeping yourself in the love of God is doable. It is doable. The invitation is there. The path is there. 
the reward is there moment by moment. And we sang that old song, I'll Fly Away. I told Randall uh, just before service started, I said, I'm not an end times guy. I said, that may be the only piece of eschatology I actually know for sure. I'll fly away. When? Don't ask me when. I don't know yet. (laughs) We have the reward of the love of God moment by moment in the life of a Christian, and we have the ultimate reward of the love of God waiting for us, assured, guaranteed, sealed. And so since I can, I don't want to take it on myself to convince you, I'll just use the words God used. It's the benediction that closes out the letter of Jude. Let your hearts and minds be convinced by Scripture. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. I don't think there's any rush to, to, to hop out of here. Um, there, there is for me. I'm supposed to be at a Franklin, Franklin County Cemetery in about an hour in a suit. But, but even though I've got to go get into that thing, uh, there are elders here in the room. There are prayer team members here in the room. There are Christians all over this place. And I hope there are a whole lot of Christians who are willing to testify to the love of God. If you're wondering how, if, if, if you hear me saying, like, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, you're still going, like, ah, there's a piece missing, maybe get with somebody and ask. Get with somebody who's experienced the love of God and say, uh, what path did you take? How did you uh, build yourself up? How did you pray in the Holy Spirit? But linger for as long as you like and enjoy one another's company, and best of all, the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ, the bridegroom who expresses his perfect love for us. I got love for you too. His is better. I'll see you next time.
Amen. Amen. Stand up. We're going to worship this morning. It's good to see y'all. Jesus, we love you. We praise you, Lord. We just come. We just put our eyes on you this morning, Lord. I thank you, Jesus, that uh, regardless of what our week has looked like, what yesterday looked like, Lord, today's a new day with you. So we just put our hope in you. We put our eyes on you this morning. We lift up your name. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Your 
never gonna let you're never gonna let me down you're never gonna let you're never gonna let me down you're never gonna let you're never gonna let me down you're never gonna let you're never gonna You're never gonna let me down. 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 thank you that you have said in your word that you'll never leave us or forsake us. 
And so, Lord, we can declare these words with confidence, knowing that in all of our life, you're going to be faithful. Your word is true. And so I just want to spend just maybe 20 seconds of just whatever your week has been, whatever news you've received, that you would just cast it on the Lord. He says, cast your cares upon me, for I care and I love you. So let's just take a few seconds. Let's just do that. Let's just lay him down and, and surrender him to him. No matter how joyful the situation be or, or painful it is, knowing that He is the faithful one. So let's just talk to Him this morning. that one more time. you are a congregation, which means you are not here to watch a show. You are here to be active participants as we honor the Lord. And as participants, I have something I need you to do this morning, and that is to say out loud, God does. Okay? Go. God does. I have some questions for you, and they are not my questions. They are questions the Lord asked of Job. But the answer to every question will be, God does. And I want you to say it out loud. And here's why I actually want you to say it out loud. A lot of you know I used to be a teacher. When you hear something, you kind of remember it. But when you participate in it, you remember it. 
who unleashes lightning beneath the whole heaven and sends it to the end of the earth? God does. Who says to the snow fall on the earth and to the rain shower be a mighty downpour? Who controls the clouds and makes the lightnings flash? Who has given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? Who brings forth the constellations in their seasons? Who can count the clouds? Who gives the horse its strength? Who clothes its neck with the flowing mane? Who commands the eagles to soar? All of those questions are questions you can find at the end of the book of Job. And in just a moment, Ed is going to bring us the message from the book of Job. But here is one thing I am confident of. When you can learn the answers to those questions, then the other questions you have become easier to answer. So then when you say, who can make sense of this diagnosis? Who can bring me peace in this situation? Who can give me my sense of identity when I feel lost? And you find those answers here. This is a big deal for us at Cobblestone. One of the things that encourages my heart is the way that our elders are making such a big deal about wanting our people to know this book. And not only in the way that they're bringing the message, thank you, the way they're bringing the message on Sunday mornings, but the way that they're intentionally, consistently putting events on the calendar for us to know the Word of God. Because when you know the Word of God, then you get to know God. And when you know the Word of God, it becomes a whole lot easier to discern what His Spirit is saying to you. In a couple weeks, we're going to gather to worship the God who does all these things. It's our next event on our second and fourth Sunday. It'll be the fourth Sunday of May, where we can come together and sing to and pray to the God full of power. Next Sunday morning at 9 a.m., John is going to be leading a study for an hour on how we share God's heart for the disadvantaged. We hear the importance of mercy, but sometimes it's really hard to know how to live that out, how to walk that out. So next Sunday at 9 o'clock, John is going to open the Word, and he's going to explain that. I hope you can come both services next week. 9 a.m., come to that class, sign up for it on the website, and then find yourselves here second service. But then the final thing I want to let you know about is that next month, for the whole month, we're going to have a month-long Bible school. Four weeks in a row, you got to come to all the weeks just to study this in depth. Andrew's going to be teaching. You'll want to sign up on the website. But we want you to know this word because we want you to know that Jesus, who is the only one who can satisfy and meet your every need. I'm so glad you're here today to hear the word brought by Ed in just a moment. I thought I turned it on. I did. I'm proud of myself. 
The book of Job doesn't specify the author, but was most likely written by Job, Elihu, Moses, or Solomon. The nature of the writing places this book as possibly the oldest in scripture. Job is an upright man, prosperous by worldly standards, and faithful in the eyes of God. His allegiance to the Lord is tested when God allows Satan to inflict harm upon him, striking Job with disease, destroying all his possessions, and taking the lives of his children. A group of friends gather to comfort Job, insisting that suffering is a result of sin. Job denies this argument, repeatedly asserting his innocence despite their plea for him to repent. Job takes his case directly to God, torn between the knowledge of God's goodness and the despair of his present circumstances. Pleading for deliverance from his sorrow, Job asks God if he takes enjoyment in destroying his creation. The magnitude of God's sovereignty is revealed in his response. Who calls the sun to rise? Who can loose the stars? Who can ask the clouds to issue forth rain? Job and his friends thought they had enough knowledge to understand God's workings in the world, but humanity's perspective will never comprehend God's good, ordered, and beautiful plan in a broken, imperfect, and dangerous world. God asks Job to trust his wisdom and character, and Job responds to the Lord's grandeur with humility, apologizing for his accusation. God honors Job's posture and restores his family and fortunes beyond what they once were. In Job's affliction, we see the human tendency to simplify our circumstances and accuse God in the face of suffering rather than resting in his character. All right, good morning, everybody. So today we are going to talk about Job. And uh, yeah, it's a really long book, and most of it is really hard to read. Especially, like, I'm a high school science teacher, and um, I don't really like poems, uh, in all honesty. So reading that book is a little bit feeling like it's a little bit torturous, honestly, sometimes. Because it takes a lot of work for this brain to get it. But that's okay. Uh, and in that, I have a little bit of a confession uh, to tell you guys. So uh, when Andrew put me on the preaching schedule for the middle section of Job, my honest kind of secret first reaction was like, oh, I don't want to do it. Um, and I thought to myself, well, I really like the end of Job, so maybe I'll switch with Andrew. Like, I'll just ask him to switch with me, and it'll be fine. Uh, but then I felt really convicted uh, because what I really honestly I felt the Lord say to me is like, is that really who you are? And I was like, actually, Lord, no, I really do love your word. And like, honestly, like if people would want to do like a, a Bible study on the book of Deuteronomy, like I'm like, let's do it. Like, I really do believe that God wrote this whole thing for me. And I really do believe he wrote this whole thing for you. And I don't think we should shy away from any of it. Uh, but I did at that moment. I just thought it'd be easier to preach out of a passage that I like better. And uh, I, was, I just felt the Lord say, like, you should not communicate to my people that there are portions of Scripture that they can only understand if they have a seminary degree. And I was like, I'm sorry. Uh, so here we go, guys. We're going to talk about Job because all Scripture is breathed out from God. Uh, and he meant it for you. He meant it for me. And we don't need to be scared of any of it. We don't need to shy away from any of it because he, give, he can give all of us understanding. He can speak to us from all portions of Scripture. So 
With that in mind, kids, we believe that God speaks to you too. So if you got your clipboard from Miss Kristen up front, we today we have special kids sermon notes for you, okay? With fill in the words, fill in the blanks, you fill it in with words. Uh, there's a word bank on top. And there's going to be three steps along the way where there's going to be a slide that's going to tell you what the word is, okay? So if you're a kid in here and you're taking your notes, you can follow along. And I think we have our first slide ready to go there, and it is, I can understand God's word, okay? God's word is for kids too. It's not just for adults. And kids, you can understand God's word. Now, Miss Kristen put some other fun coloring stuff in there for you guys like she always does. Uh, but just be on the lookout, because every now and then, there's going to be two more slides for you with uh, some words that you can fill in there, and you can color along as we talk. So, uh, the book of Job uh, is obviously a book about suffering, and not just a little bit of suffering, but like really serious, difficult trials, okay? Uh, and in... As I was reading through the passages that we were supposed to read this week, uh, one thing that struck me is that Job uh, identifies very clearly that in the midst of his suffering, he, he he needs wisdom. He requires wisdom. He's in need of wisdom. So if we turn to Job 28, uh, verse 1. So we're going to do verse 1 through 3 and then 12 through 15. So Job 28, verse 1. Um, it says, Surely there's a mine for silver, and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth, and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out to the farthest limit the ore in gloom and deep darkness. So, you know, very poetic language. But basically what Job is saying Uh, you know, men can put an end to darkness. Like, we can dig through mountains, we can find iron, we can find gold, we can find copper. Like, we can work hard to go to really difficult places to find things that we think are valuable, things that we need, okay? But if we jump down to verse 12 on the same chapter, uh, Job says, But where is wisdom going to be found? Where is the place of understanding? Man doesn't know its worth. It's not found in the land of the living. The deep, which is the Old Testament way of saying the oceans, okay? The ocean says it's not in me. The sea says it's not with me. It can't be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. So, again, very poetic language to say, where am I going to get wisdom? Like, I can't go anywhere to get it. I can't buy it with money. Like, I'm going through a really difficult season, and I would like to know why. Why is this happening? I would like to know how. How did this happen? How am I going to get out of it? When? What? We know. We know all those questions that we ask. We just want to figure things out. Because if we have things figured out, then we feel like it's not out of control. Like, if we could at least know then maybe it'd be a little bit less painful. And we can identify with that. We can identify with with Job's emotions right there. I wish I knew what's going on. Uh, And maybe it wouldn't be so bad. Uh, But the thing was, he didn't know what was going on. He had no idea. 
And in that chapter, and I'm not going to read the whole chapter, he goes on to say, I know that wisdom is found with God, and that God says, fear God and hate evil. And that's what, that's what it means to be wise, um, which is true. Uh, but then Job says, I did it. I feared God. I hated evil. And all this stuff's happening to me anyways. And I don't understand why. Therefore, God must not love me. God's not faithful. Something's going on. I wish I was never born. And then he goes on to his whole thing, right? And he goes into a big pit of despair because he doesn't know what to do, right? And we can identify with Job's despair. So if we flip a page or so to Job chapter 30. So Job chapter 30, starting at verse 16. Job says, my soul is poured out within me. And I think that's such a powerful way to say it. Like sometimes our, when we're going through trials, our emotions are just so out of whack. You just feel spent. Like there is nothing left. Like I'm, I'm done. Like I'm poured out. He says, days of affliction have taken hold of me. And that's how we feel sometimes. We feel like something from the outside came and took a hold of our lives and there's nothing we can do now. I've, I'm in bondage to this circumstance, right? Days of affliction have taken hold of me. He says, the night racks my bones. So he's not getting good sleep. And the pain that gnaws me takes no rest. He said, I don't get a break from this. I can't sleep. When I'm awake, it's, it's troublesome. I'm dreaming about it. Like I get no break from this all the time. It's nonstop. And then he just, his heart just dives into deep darkness. And he goes on, uh, I think, verse 19. He says, God has cast me into the mire. I have become like dust and ashes. I cry out to you for help, but you don't answer me. So he's saying to God, I'm talking to you, but you're not saying anything back. He says, I, I stand and I can tell you're there. But the only thing you're doing is you're just looking at me. You're not doing anything. You're not saying anything. And this sucks, basically. You have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. You lift me up on the wind. You make me ride on it. You toss me about in the roar of the storm. So Job is having a really bad day, <laughs> basically, is what comes down to it. He... Uh, you know, he recognizes that God's there. He can, like, he has this inkling that he's, God's there looking at him, but he can't hear and he can't see God do anything. So the only conclusion that he ends up with is, you're persecuting me and you're doing it for no good reason. And I don't know why you're doing this. And whether we're saying those specific words or not, we can identify with, even the sort of unconscious accusation that we have against God sometimes during the time of trial, uh, that he's not doing this or that, or he's not saying this or that. It's hard. It's hard when we're going through trials. Um, so why have this written in Scripture? I think there's many reasons, but a few of them would be to help us remember, like Andrew talked a couple weeks ago, that we're not alone in our suffering. Like, when we're suffering, we tend to think well, like we're the first ones and we're the only ones, but that's not true. Uh, this is a common human experience. 
Um, and the good thing about that is that the Holy Spirit has helped people through thousands of years out of those. Not that God would need practice, but he's had a lot of practice uh, helping people out of difficult circumstances. And really, like, whatever we're going through, as horrible as it may seem, at the end of the day is really not that unusual if you think about the history of humankind. God's seen it before. He's gotten people out of it before. He's going to do it again. He's going to do it with us. And we can have that comfort. Um, And I think there's also something very powerful to being recognized by God, that he put it in Scripture, that he understands human suffering, that he understands our weakness, and that he's okay with it. Uh, He's not, like, he's not surprised by it. He knows exactly how we feel. Uh, Now, the cool thing about identification is that God doesn't just recognize that we go through that. He allowed himself to go through those same emotions. So um, when Jesus became a man, he became a man so that he could identify himself with us in every way imaginable. And one of those ways was to feel overcome by pain. If we look at Matthew 27, verse 46. Matthew 27, verse 46. So what's happening here is Jesus is on the cross. Um, And then he says, About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That means, and this is so gut-wrenching, My God, my God, why did you forsake me? Why did you leave me? Why did you do this to me? You know, that's what Jesus is really saying there. He's like, you left me. Why? You know, and that comes from a deep place. And Jesus felt that. He felt it for real. And he identifies with us. And we can have comfort in that, that God is not far away. He didn't just create the universe and let it go. Even when things went wrong, he's still intimately involved in everything. Even in our pain, he felt it for himself. He made himself weak so he could identify fully with our weakness. Now, if you're like me, I think the identification stuff is awesome and it is helpful, but I like problems to be solved. And I'm always like, thank you, Lord, that you identify with me. It does help me feel better, but like, still, how do we get out of this? Can we just please just get over this? That's just how my heart functions, okay? Uh, Now, one thing in the book of Job that we see that's interesting is that Job never mentions the written word of God, like Moses' law, anything from the prophets. There's at least, it seems like there's no hint of it there. There's also no hint of Israel or Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. None of those guys are ever even mentioned there. So one of two things probably happened. Either Job experienced all of this before Moses came along, and there was no written word of God, or... Uh, he lived really far away from Israel, and he didn't have access to the Word of God, which is not our case, right? Part of the reason why Job was in so much despair was because he lacked revelation, revelation that we now have. And as horrible and as awful many circumstances are, we don't have 
to be in such severe despair for such an extended period of time. There is a way to be comforted. There is a way to gain wisdom. There is a way to overcome it. And what that way is, is the word of God, which Job didn't have, but we now have. And we can see in Jesus' example that Jesus himself navigated his suffering. He navigated his crucifixion uh, by using the Old Testament. Okay, So if we look at Matthew 26, verse uh, 52 to 54. So what's happening here uh, is Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's done praying, and then the soldiers show up to get him, and then Peter starts fighting with everybody, cuts the guy's ear off, and then Jesus says to Peter, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And then he tells Peter, do you not think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? So what Jesus is referring here to is to Psalm 91, when there's a promise that God will send his angels to keep his people from stumbling. So already Jesus is quoting scripture here, or at least alluding to it. Um, and then he says to Peter, but how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? So Jesus navigated his crucifixion with the Bible. And if Jesus, being God, decided to navigate his suffering with the scripture, that is how we're supposed to do it. Now, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was praying and he experienced extreme distress and extreme anxiety to the point where the Bible says that he was sweating blood, which is actually a medical condition. Certain people, when they experience very, very extreme anxiety, uh, blood can actually seep out of their skin. Um, so it's not some like weird spiritual thing that happened. It was a very real thing that Jesus was experiencing. And then we know that Jesus prayed um, you know, God, you know, if it's your will, pass this cup from me, but not what I will, what you want. I want to do that. But the interesting thing is we don't know what else Jesus prayed, right? But when he gets up, he starts quoting scripture left and right. And if you read through the crucifixion story, he's quoting, Zach or at least alluding to Zechariah and Daniel and the Psalms. And my theory, and it is just a theory, is that what Jesus did there with the Father and the Holy Spirit is he rehearsed Scripture. And the Father reminded him of Scripture, and he rehearsed it, and he said it back to God, because when he gets up, that's what he's doing. That's what's coming out of his mouth is the Scripture. Um, and I think that's what we need to do uh, in our suffering. We need to hold on to the Word of God. And it doesn't have to be as bad as it was for Job. It can get better. Uh, there is hope for us. See, God knew that we needed stuff during trials. And God decided to use Job to be some of that stuff, some of the word. Job didn't have it, but we, don't ha we do have it. We don't have to suffer as much as Job did. There's a way out of the misery. Now, the really cool thing, and of course God is so smart and so much smarter than all of us, is that uh, in our Bible reading, we're reading you know, a passage and then either Psalm or the Proverbs. So right now we're reading Job, and one of the Psalms that we read this week was Psalm 119, which is uh, the biggest chapter in the Bible, 
And it's a song about the Bible. It's a song about how awesome the Bible is. Really, that's how you could summarize it. The Bible is awesome. That's what the whole psalm is about, okay? Uh, but the really neat thing about Psalm 119 is that it talks a lot about suffering. And it talks over and over about how the psalmist navigated his seasons of suffering with the Bible. It's what comforted him. Now, he, of course, is talking about like the, probably the first five books of the Bible. Uh, of course, we have more than that. Uh, but the point is the Scripture helps us navigate through suffering. Okay, so I want to switch, if you want to flip your Bibles over to Psalm 119, we're going to read through several verses in Psalm 119, okay? Uh, And I only picked a few because there are so many verses in here about trial and suffering and being persecuted and being wronged and being misunderstood. Uh, So anyways, Psalm 119, verse 28, he says, My soul melts away for sorrow. Now, isn't that what Job said earlier? Job said, my soul's poured out within me, right? The psalm is saying the same thing here. He's experienced the same exact thing that Job was. And he said, my soul is melting away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. See, Job couldn't pray that second half. He didn't have the word. But you do, and I do, and we can pray that second half. We can be honest with God about how we feel, but then we can look for the way out, which is strengthen me according to your word. We skip to verse 50, Psalm 119, verse 50. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. Now, did Job have any comfort in his affliction? Nope, not even his friends were very helpful, okay? And he didn't have the word, but here the psalmist is saying, I have your promises, and when I'm feeling like I'm dying on the inside, your promise gives me life. Uh, Verse 92, Psalm 119, verse 92. If your law had not been my delight... I would have perished in my affliction. Now, sometimes we're like, you know, this trial is going to destroy me. Uh, And sometimes we're just, you know, discouraged and whatnot. But maybe sometimes that's true. Because he says right here, I would have perished. Like, that was too much. That was too much for me. But what he said is, your word kept me steady. Your word kept me from falling apart. Yes, there are trials, there are circumstances that really, maybe they really are too much for us. But that doesn't mean that we're without hope. That doesn't mean that we're without a way out. The word will keep us steady. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, if you build your house, your emotional makeup, your thoughts, the way you choose to spend your time, the way you choose to spend your money, the way you do relationships, if you build your house according to my word, when the rain comes and when the flood comes and when the wind comes, in other words, they're going to come. When it comes, you're not going to fall apart. I'm going to hold you up. 
And if it feels like you're falling apart, I'll pick you back up. And that's the promise that we have in the word. Psalm 119, verse 165. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. I love the, I don't want to say hyperbole, but like the big words in this verse. It's not like a little peace have those who most of the time the word won't make them stumble. Like it's not like great peace we can experience. It's possible. Like it's for real. It can really happen to you. You can experience great peace in the midst of suffering if you love God's word. And it can be so powerful in your life that really nothing can make you stumble. Now, what this, I don't think this means is that you're like perfect all the time, like I'm an all-star Christian, you know, like everything's going wrong and I'm just awesome. That's not what it means, okay? What it means is the story of your life essentially was you didn't quit. You didn't stumble like all the way. Maybe there was a day, maybe there was a week, a month, maybe even a year where you quit, but then you signed back up. And if you're a person who's in the Word, that's going to be your story. Nothing's going to make you stumble in the long run. And at the end of the day, when you look back in your life, you're going to say, somehow, I did it. I didn't quit. And if we don't quit, guys, we win. It's automatic. Sometimes all that God is asking us to do is just not quit. Just keep walking. So, um, kids, we have a slide for you. The next word for you there is God's word comforts me. Now, what comfort means, excuse me, what comfort means is that it's like a hug. Okay, so you know when you get a cut or something, sometimes you need a hug. You need a hug from mom, dad, grandpa, grandma, teacher, somebody. And that's what God's word is to us, and that's what God's word is to kids. It's like a hug. God's word comforts me. Uh, the cool thing about Psalm 119 uh, that we see is that the word of God also gives us wisdom. Okay? So Psalm 119, verse 98. Okay? It gives us wisdom in seasons of uh, trial. Psalm 119, verse 98, he says, Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. Now, uh, we see in Job's life that, like Jeremiah said last time, he had some really good friends until they opened their mouths, right? And then they sort of became his enemies because really they were accusing him and saying, really, Job, you got to have some secret sin in your life. That's why this is happening to you. God doesn't let this happen to people. Uh, they sort of became his enemies, like they were making it worse. They weren't being helpful. Uh, it would have been better if they weren't there, if that's what they're going to say. Uh, and in seasons where people are against us, whether they have reason to or no reason to, and they feel like enemies, uh, and you just don't know what to say, you don't know what to think, you feel conflicted, the Word says that God's Word will give you wisdom and will make you wiser and rise above the accusations if they're unfounded. Uh, God's word is that source of wisdom in our trials. Psalm 119, verse 130. Psalm 119, verse 130. 
says, and I love this little phrase here, the unfolding of your wisdom, of your word, gives light. The unfolding of your word gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. What the psalmist is saying there, and Paul says the same thing in Ephesians 1, when he's praying for the Ephesians, he says, pray that God will give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of who Jesus is. Um, but he's saying the same thing here. He says, the unfolding of your word gives light. So when you're reading scripture and the Holy Spirit just comes and does that on the scripture when you're reading, he opens it up to you. And that is just a bright light in your heart. And it's just one of the most delightful, pleasurable experiences in the word to have the God of heaven open himself up and pour his heart out to you through his word when he opens up his word. It is just marvelous. And it's honestly one of the best feelings of the, in the world. And it doesn't matter the depth of darkness that we're in. When God comes and unfolds his word and he opens it up to your heart, it fills you with light. And God's light is way brighter than whatever darkness we're going through. It doesn't matter how awful it is. The unfolding of God's word gives us light. Now, kids, we have another slide for you. And it's okay if you're not done coloring the last part there. But God's word makes me wise or gives me wisdom. Okay, so kids, you can gain wisdom. You can become wise by being in the word. Okay, now, um, I wanted to give a personal testimony uh, because really when we're going through trials, it doesn't, the Bible sometimes doesn't feel real because people are gone, right? Those people, you can't like talk to them. You can't see them. You can't like hear their voice. Uh, so a while back, XYZ happened, and it's a really long sob story, and I'm not going to get into it. Uh, but really what it did is it triggered some really... Uh, traumatic memories for me, and like all the worst things that I feared were like all happening at the same time, and it was like a perfect storm, and uh, and I felt so. In all honesty, to be completely authentic here, is one of my biggest fears in life is uh, fear of what other people might do to me or might do to people that I love, because the truth is, is we're all bound to each other, right? I can be a great blessing to you, or I could be a great curse to you. And even if the Holy Spirit convicts me, I can tell him no. God's given me the will that if I want to be awful, I can, right? And so can everybody else. Um, and it's, to me, it's terrifying that I can be the best Christian in the world, but because I'm in relationship with people, they can cause me like tremendous pain and suffering. And um, I, I, I still struggle with this. It's better now. Uh, but I have a big fear of loss. And I have a big fear that somebody else is going to cause me to lose something that uh, is not my fault. And I have an even bigger loss that somebody's going to do that to my family. And that just, it makes me fall apart. It, it's really difficult for me to deal with that. Um, and it was just a situation where that was happening, and I felt hopeless because there was nothing I could do. There really wasn't anything I could do. And uh, 
the individual had just no remorse and was just doing terrible, awful, evil, evil things. And um, I honestly started losing it. I had to force myself to eat. I couldn't sleep. When I did sleep, I would sleep for like two hours, and then I would wake up just covered in sweat. And I'd wake up like in a jolt, you know, and just covered in sweat. There was one time I had to change my clothes because I was wet uh, just from all the sweat, and it was gross, uh, honestly. And uh, I used to sometimes feel so afraid of what was going to happen that I would sit there and I would literally start shaking. And it wasn't because it was cold, because it was the summer, uh, but I would just start shivering. And one time, one of those nights where I couldn't sleep, I was shivering so bad that I actually woke my wife up because I was just sitting in bed shaking, you know, and she put her hand on my shoulder, on my chest and prayed for me, and I felt a little better. And then she was able to go back to sleep. I wasn't, but at least she was able to go back to sleep. Uh, but it was, it was hard. It was hard for me because everything that I hoped would never happen was happening, and I was, I was, there was nothing I could do about it. And uh, one of those nights where I was barely sleeping, I actually had a dream uh, that I believe was from the Lord. Now, here at Cobblestone, we still believe that God speaks to us in that way. We always have to test it against Scripture uh, to make sure we're not making stuff up, because we do sometimes, and not every dream is from God. Uh, but this one, I believe, was, and it was very simple. Uh, you know, dreams are weird, but I was somehow looking at myself and this, like, braver version of me was telling me, preach Isaiah 40. Ed, Isaiah 40, Isaiah 40, preach Isaiah 40. And I was just telling myself repeatedly, like, do this, do this. Like, you have to do this. You have to do this. So I woke up, and frankly, my first thought was, like, finally God said something. <laughs> uh, but after that, I was thinking about it, and I realized, like, my way out of this mess is going to be in the Word, which I already knew. And I was trying. I was reading the Bible and just nothing. And I was praying and nothing. And I was, you know, I was exercising like you're supposed to because it helps you deal with your stress. And I was going to a counselor. Like, we don't have to over-spiritualize everything. And those things were helpful. But honestly, that thing was just too big. It wasn't like the natural stuff. It wasn't going to do it. It just really wasn't. And... Um, I, I was like, you know, I'm an all-way, like, all-the-way kind of guy. I don't like to do things halfway. So, like, I went into Isaiah 40 like crazy. Like, I spent months in it. I memorized the whole thing. I read commentaries. I prayed, like, you know, like, almost fanatic, you know. Uh, but I just knew that I was just so broken at that moment that either God was going to do something or I was just going to stay broken for a really long time. Uh, and I wanted to read some of those verses with you guys uh, because I think they're comforting when we're going through trials. Uh, so Isaiah 40, verse 26. Um, 26 through the end. Of course, Isaiah 40, I think now, is amazing. Uh, and there is no way to go through all of it on a Sunday morning. It is impossible. But I would like to go through some minor highlights from this passage, because even this, like, we could go on for longer. But uh, I'm just going to read little phrases and just kind of talk about how I was feeling and how the Lord spoke to me. So Isaiah 40, verse 26. 
uh, and then we'll go through to the end of the chapter. So lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. So what's happening here is Isaiah in chapter 39, he had just told Israel, like, you guys are going to go to Babylon and you're going to become slaves. Uh, This is going to be the end result of your sins. Like, this is where it's going. But then in chapter 40, he starts speaking to the people who are there, like, ahead of time, because he knew they were going to need encouragement. He knew they were going to need a word from God. And one of the things that he tells those people is, Stop looking at the circumstances and just lift up your head and look at the stars. The these that he's talking about is the stars. You have to go outside at night and look at the stars and think about them and do it over and over and over and over again. And I did this as best as I could, which wasn't very good, but I tried. Um, And then he says, Who created these? Where do these things come from? What's going on? He says, it's he who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. And um, so often I just preach to myself, you know, if God can look at billions of stars just their dance through the galaxies, and he knows all their number, and he knows all their names, then certainly he, besides the fact that people do their own stuff and they have their free will, somehow he's still in control of my life. He's still in control of my family, and we're going to be okay. And I just had to preach that to myself over and over again. Like, he's powerful enough to oversee the billions of little decisions that billions of people make here on earth and still make good come out of it. If he can control the universe, then he is like, because that's what I felt. I felt like, I know God loves me, but I still know that people can hurt me. And I just had to believe that God was above that somehow And where does the sovereignty of God start? And where does the free will of man start? Nobody knows. Like, it doesn't matter. You can read books. You're still not going to know. You know, like nobody really knows the answer to that. Uh, But somehow, he's going to finish my story is what I kept telling myself. This is not the end of my story. He's going to finish my story. He's going to make it work. He's making it work right now in the heavens. He's going to make it work here on earth. And then, you know, the word of God is so precise. Why do you say, O Ed, and speak in your heart, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Often in seasons of trial we say, you know, maybe God doesn't really see this. Maybe he's worried about everybody else and he's just letting me go through this right now. Uh, or like, you know, God, this isn't the way this is supposed to happen. Like, it wasn't supposed to be like this. You're disregarding my right, you know, like this isn't the way it's supposed to work. Uh, But then, you know, God's word's so precise. It says, have you not known, have you not heard? 
And uh, often when I was in Isaiah 40, I would confess, I was like, the reason why I'm feeling this way is because I really don't know God like I thought I did. And I really haven't heard in the depths of my heart how good he is and how powerful he is and how wise he is. Because if I had heard and if I did know and I did believe, I wouldn't feel this way. So I often repented, even in my trial, that part of the problem was me. Part of the problem was my lack of vision and my lack of perspective. And uh, it's hard to do when you're hurting because you just want somebody to come and comfort you. But to me, that was key. I had to come back and say over and over, I really don't know you like I thought I did. Um, And I need help. I need you to show me. I repent. The reason why this hurts so bad is because I'm blind and I need you to open my eyes. And sometimes we're when we're going through seasons of suffering, we still need to be open about our sin and our blindness and our limitations. And yes, we want comfort from God, but we need to repent for our sin, for our lack of knowing God. And I think that that's very important. Um, Now, here's the good part. It says, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. Um, I heard in the radio many years ago, a woman talking about how she was going through a really difficult trial because her son was growing up and, you know, he was behaving very badly, very difficult things were happening, and then they discovered he had autism. And it was uh, on the spectrum, it was very severe, uh, very severe, very, very severe. And she was just, you know, it's hard. I have a child with autism. It's hard sometimes. And she said, um, and somebody came up to her and said, the creator of the universe doesn't create with straight lines. And that struck me so much because, um, like I said, I'm a high school science teacher. Like, I hated English in school. Every time I turned in an essay, I was like, well, that might be an A, it might be an F. I have no idea. But when I took a math test, I knew exactly what grade I was going to get. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I'm, just, I'm just that kind of individual. I love a straight line. I love predictable. Like, I love it. You know, it's just who I am. But that's not how God does things. Like, not even a little bit. Uh, really, at least that's, that's the story of my life anyways. Uh, if you look at nature, nothing's straight. Like there is nothing straight in nature. We can build a road, it's straight, but it's also dead and it gets hot and it's dirty, you know? Like who, like nobody goes to a tourist place to see a road You know what I mean? Like, they're ugly. They're functional, but they're dead, and they're ugly. And God doesn't do that. Uh, He makes beautiful things, but they're full of curves, and they're complicated, but they're beautiful, you know? Uh, And that's that's how he does things. And uh, we have to tell ourselves that life's not, or at least for me, I have to tell myself, 
this thing is not going to go in a straight line. Like, whatever it is, it never goes in a straight line. There's even no, like, there's no reason to expect it to. Um, and then he goes on, Isaiah goes on, and he says, God, he doesn't faint or grow weary. And the word faint there means failing under life's pressures. Like, you can't put so much on God that he either physically or his heart doesn't go, oh. We go like that all the time. Sometimes we don't even want to read the news anymore, right? Because it's like too much, too much negativity. But the amazing thing about God is that he can look at the most awful traumatic thing that can happen to like the most innocent child and have perfect compassion and have a way to rescue out of that situation and be love and cry and not feel faint, and not get weary with it. I don't know how to do that. And I used, during this time, I used to tell God all the time, how do you do that? Like, tell me, I want to know. How do you not get faint or grow weary? I would like to know, because that would be a really good skill to have. And I don't have it. Uh, again, the Word of God is so precise. The answer is in the next little phrase. It says, his understanding is unsearchable. And what really the Holy Spirit was telling me is he can see the end. He can see how he's going to fix it, and that's why it doesn't overwhelm him. He can see the whole story. He's always ahead of you. You're right here, and you act like you're dying, but he knows what's going to happen. Um, and that was comforting, you know, but then I'd say, well, that doesn't feel that helpful because I can't see it. Like, I, I don't like that. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, I do some, and it's my honest conversation. You don't have to be as irreverent as I am. Uh, but I'm like, this isn't helpful. Like, it's a little bit helpful, but I I'm still feel like a hot mess. Like, I'm falling apart. And the next little phrase is the answer to that comment. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Now, the interesting thing is I really would like to be able to read, like, my life story ahead of time. I think that would be amazing. Uh, but I know that the answer to that prayer is no. Um, he gives us glimpses sometimes, but he doesn't give us the whole book to read. Uh, but it does say what he gives. He gives power to the faint. So again, that word faint, where you fail under life's pressures, says he gives power. Now that word power there comes from, in Hebrew, the word bone. He can make you like a bone, sturdy, hard, okay, durable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might. So if it gets to the point where the strength is gone, that's okay. He's the creative God. He can increase strength. And I was like, I, I can do that. I'm, I'm cool with that. You know, like we won't know the whole story, but he will give us strength. And the strength that he gives us is according to his word. And then it says, even youth shall faint and be weary, and young man shall fall exhausted. And there's so many times in life, and this happens to every Christian, where we say yes to the God thing. We say yes to the thing that God's calling us to. We say yes to pursuing God. But then the rage of Satan comes. 
and just the mundane of daily life comes. And then people say and do things, you know, and they just have no mercy. And it happens over and over and over again. And what the Word tells us, you can be the youngest person with the most amount of zeal, with the most amount of energy, you're going to want to quit. You're going to get weary. You're going to get exhausted. At some point, you're going to get exhausted. Okay? But then at that point, what do we do? Right? And we all know, we all have known people who in their Christian walk, they just decided to scale back on their passion. Well, maybe it doesn't, I don't need to, you know, be that intense. Or they decided that uh, I'm just going to numb my pain with maybe a little bit too much alcohol, or I'm going to numb my pain with Netflix, or, well, maybe this sin really isn't that bad. Uh, Or we just get disillusioned, and then we say to ourselves, you know, I'm just going to get my house and my little white picket fence and have my two and a half kids, and that's okay. I don't need to be so intense anymore. You know what I mean? Because that hurt too much. Uh, you know, and those are different ways in which we quit. Uh, but the Bible says, but they who wait for the Lord, which means that there are those people who don't. And we have to ask ourselves, what kind of person are we going to be? Are we going to be the believers that when we said yes to the God thing, and then the rage of Satan came and then the people did the awful things, and then we felt exhausted. What do we do at that point? And I want to be the person who waits on the Lord. I don't want to quit. I don't want to be at the end of my life and say, yay, I lived a mediocre life, you know, like, awesome. Now I'm going to die. Great. Like, who wants that? Like, you know, Satan hates passion for God. He hates passion for God because we were made to be passionate for God. Uh, And he wants to quench it. And the thing is, he's really good at it. Satan is very good at making us feeling discouraged, disillusioned, uh, despair, disappointment. The devil is full of D's, you know, all those D's words. Like, he's very good at all of them. Uh, but they who wait for the Lord, what happens to them? They renew their strength. When the strength goes out, that durability, that bone, we go back and we wait on the Lord, it comes back to us. And then it happens again, we go back to the Lord and it comes back to us. And the question, of course, is how do we wait on the Lord? I think the best way for me that has worked in my life is what we talked about earlier, like in Psalm 119. We go back to the Word. We sign back up. And for me, the best way for the Word to be unfolded is I put it in my mouth and I say it back to God. And I ask Him questions about it. And sometimes I'm a little irreverent, but He can handle me, you know, and He can handle you. And I just talk to Him again, and I go back to what He said, and I talk to Him again, And I talk to him again, and day by day, one drop at a time sometimes. Sometimes he just comes in glory. You know, I love those times where he just comes and does it all of a sudden. It's perfect. 
But at least in my experience, that's not how he does it most often. He does it in the little day-by-day, the marathon pace, you know, uh, in the Word. So I wanted to call us to three different things. Okay, one, let's sign back up to be in the Word, you know. And if you're in the Word all the time, sign back up anyways, you know. And if you're not in the Word, let's start today. Like, today's the day to do it. You know, the devil is very good about making us feel like bad Christians when it comes to the Bible. Because we're not reading enough, or we're not this, or we're not that, okay? But, you know, there's this awesome thing called the blood of Jesus. And it, uh, I compare it to a delete button, okay? I didn't read my whole Bible this week. Delete, blood of Jesus, I'm forgiven, I'm starting today. I press the delete button all the time, like all the time to this day. You know, if I had a spiritual computer, that button would be worn out, okay? Like we just press delete and we sign back up today. There is no Christian who doesn't have to sign back up. That person doesn't exist, has never existed, will never exist, okay? You're not going to be it, okay? You're going to have to press the delete button. I'm, every time I sign back up, I know I'm going to mess it up somewhere along the way. But I know the delete button's available for me and I can sign back up, okay? So let's sign back up to be in the Word because when trial comes... It's really hard to change your habits, to change your mindset if I'm not already in the Word. Now, if you're in a difficult season and you haven't been in the Word, God gives grace. Okay, God gives grace. But if you're not in a difficult season, then by all means, develop the habit now. Because it's really hard to jump into a moving train. It's really hard to change the way you think in the midst of difficult season. You want to start that now. The other thing is to ask God to speak to you when you read the Bible. You can talk to God about the Bible. It's allowed, okay? It's okay. Um, So Psalm 119, verse 18, since we're doing lots of Psalm 119 today, uh, the psalmist said, open my eyes. Of course, he's talking about his spiritual eyes, the eyes of his heart. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. You know, the Bible can feel wonderful. It doesn't have to feel horrible or boring, okay? It can, and it's not all about feeling, uh, but God does like to wonder us. The Bible is full of wonder. And by wonder, I don't mean like Greek and Hebrew and history and geography. Like, those things are important. They have their place. But wonder is when your heart is awestruck with who God is and what he does, and how he speaks. Psalm 119, verse 73. And if you struggle with reading scripture, maybe this is the goal that you need to hold on to, okay? Your hands have made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. We're full, the devil's full of arguments why we can't understand the Bible. You weren't born in church, or you were born in the wrong church, or you don't read enough, or you read too much, or you read commentaries, or you read too many commentaries, or whatever it is, you know, like you don't have a good education, you're not smart, 
or, you know, whatever it is, we're all full of arguments why we're bad at reading the Bible. The devil's very good at that. But here's a prayer for you if you struggle with that. God made you, fashioned you. He knows where you came from. If you were like born in church or if you've been in church for a week, he knows the culture you came from, the family you came from. He knows your skills and your lack of skills. And he's way bigger than all of that put together. Okay? God can give you understanding so that you can learn his word. Okay? Every time that accusation comes, pray this. And here's the thing. The answer is yes. God's going to say yes. He already says yes. If, if you stick with it, if you don't quit, you're going to be a, a believer who understands the word. You are not shut out of God's word because you don't have a seminary degree. That makes no sense. That makes no sense. God's word, he wrote it for you. And last, um, I would like to encourage all of us to put the word of God in your mouth. Preach it to yourself. Talk to God about it. Ask him questions. Say, I don't like this. Or say, I like this. Declare it back to him. Declare it to yourself. The word of God, it sets us free. When we are in seasons of trial, I think that there's two kinds of bondage that we experience. There's a circumstance that often is out of our control. And then there's the inward bondage, the emotions and the thoughts. But the truth of God sets us free. If you remain in the word, either God will change your circumstances or he will set you free on the inside, or the better, the best one is he'll do both, okay? But the truth of God will set you free sometime. In some way, somehow, it's going to happen. Put it in your mouth. Put it in your mouth. Say it back to him. If it feels weird, that's okay. Nobody knows. You don't have to tell anybody. Just do it at home by yourself. Say the word of God back to him. Declare it. Pray it, sing it, do whatever it takes, listen to it, be in the word, be in the word, be in the word. So to recap, the word is our source of comfort in the midst of trial. There is no trial that the word of God can't sustain us through. The word of God is our source of wisdom because we always are in need of wisdom in difficult circumstances. He will give us wisdom according to his word. So let's sign back up to be in the word. Let's ask him to speak to us through the word. And let's put it in our mouth. Declare it back to him so that we can be set free by the word of God. Worship team, if you guys want to come back up. I want to pray for us. We're going to have prayer counselors up here. Uh, if you're in a difficult season and you would just like somebody to pray for you, if you want to sign back up and you want to ask God for grace to be in the Word, or if you have any sort of prayer request, if you just feel discouraged, let's wait on the Lord together and He will renew our strength. Let's wait on Him in His Word. Let's declare it back to Him and He will change us. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You that we don't have to suffer in the way that Job suffered anymore. I thank you that there is a way out of it, that the unfolding of your word gives us light. 
Father, I pray right now, will you unlock our hearts with your word? I pray for grace for every one of us this week as we uh, sign up to get back in your word. Will you speak to us? We want to hear your voice. We need you. We need you, Jesus. We want to be a people of your word. We repent for not knowing you. We repent for not seeing you as you are. But will you, now will you show us who you are in your word? In Jesus' name. Be close, close to your side, so heaven is real and death is alive. I want to hear voices of angels above, singing as one, hallelujah, holy holy God Almighty, the great I am, who is worthy, none beside thee, God Almighty, the great I am. want to be near, near to your heart, loving the world and hating the dark. I want to see dry bones living again and singing as one, oh hallelujah, oh, Holy, holy, God Almighty, the great I am, who is worthy, and beside God Almighty, the great I am, The mountains shake before you, the demons run free. At the mention of your name, King of Majesty, there is no power in hell or in For the power and the presence of the great I am, 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 the great I am. Holy, holy, God, O 
Oh 